Thanks for reading, Debbie. Please do keep your Bibles open at Numbers 13 and 14. It's lovely to hear that this part of the Bible has happy memories for Ben. Uh, Caleb does indeed stand out along with Joshua and Moses, uh, but they shine as stars in a very dark night sky. Uh, I'm a fan of the Essendon Football Club, and sadly, since returning to Melbourne, these have been my football chapters. Uh, I came back from Mexico in 2011. That year, James Hurd, one of the club's greatest ever players, became the coach, and the initial signs were positive. Uh, the next year, Captain Joe Watson won the Brownlow Medal for the best and fairest player in the league, and it seemed as if Essendon was on the verge of a golden era. And then the scandal of the 2012 supplements program broke, uh, ruining careers, tarnishing the reputation of a generation of players uh, and leaving the Bombers to spend uh, years in the football wilderness, finishing bottom of the ladder last year. Well, now the fines are paid, the suspensions have been served and fans hope that Saturday night's uh, season opening win against Hawthorne, good morning, Brian, uh, <laughs> marks the beginning of a new and brighter chapter in the club's history. <laughs> well, back in Genesis 12, when human sin seems to have turned the world and God's purposes pear-shaped, God speaks to a nobody called Abram, an old man with a barren wife. He tells Abram to leave his country, his people and his father's house. And he promises Abram that he'll give him a new land and many descendants and make him into a great nation. God promises to bless him and through him to bless the world. At the end of Genesis, Abram's descendants now number 70, but they're living outside the promised land in Egypt. As the book of Exodus begins, we find the Israelites now enormous in number, uh, languishing in slavery in Egypt, as God forewarned would happen. And then God rescues the Israelites from Egypt with a mighty hand and to maximise the display of his glory, he prolongs the process through a series of ten plagues and a final defeat of Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. A few chapters and a few months later, the Israelites reach Mount Sinai and there they remain for almost a year as God establishes his covenant with the people and prepares them for the next step. Through most of Exodus, all of Leviticus and the first part of the book of Numbers, they stay there and then in Numbers chapter 10, they move out. With the Ark of the Covenant going in front of them, God leading his people in this triumphant march to the land that he's promised them. A couple of months later, they reach Kadesh Barnea on the southern border of the promised land. And at God's instruction, Moses sends a dozen spies on a reconnaissance mission. The Israelites are poised. And we come to our reading. Ten of the spies bring back a negative report. They acknowledge the fruitfulness of the land, but they say that the Israelites won't be able to overcome the people of the land. Have they forgotten so quickly that it was God who fought for them in the Exodus and that he's with them now? Their report leads to mass rebellion by the whole people. Initially, we see the people's unwillingness. They 
reject God's plan and the very purpose of their redemption from Egypt. In fact, they propose replacing Moses and going back to Egypt. The men uh, mask their sin with pious concern for their wives and children. They'll be taken as plunder. And this is not just a rejection of Moses. It's a rejection of God. They even attribute malicious motives to God. He's only bringing us into the land to be killed. They say, as Moses recalls in Deuteronomy chapter 1, the Lord hates us. Now, the Exodus is the great Old Testament model of God's saving action. So it's sheer perversity for the people to paint it as his cruel plan to kill them. But it's outrageous. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces, expecting God to judge this blasphemy. Caleb and Joshua tear their clothes and their appeal to the people shows us more about what's going on as they urge the Israelites, we can do it. God will lead us into the land and give it to us. Only don't rebel and don't be afraid. The people are in rebellion. This is willful disobedience of God's command and they are acting in fear. The land will swallow us up. The people of the land are just too big and too strong for us. And in their fear, they do not turn to God. Actually, they talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb, that is, as false prophets. The irony. Just then, God's glory appears and his words expose the heart of the rebellion. How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? Despite everything God has done, they refuse to trust him. They willfully disobey him. They despise him. In effect, they accuse God of being both a liar and a murderer. He has made them his treasured possession and now they spit in his face. But it's unthinkable. This is spectacular sin. Most of our sin is grubby and ordinary. But this episode goes straight to the lowlights reel when the Bible recounts the story of God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness. It's referred to again in Numbers 32, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, in the Psalms, in Amos, in 1 Corinthians, in Hebrews. Listen to how the New Testament applies this episode to Christians. In 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Be careful that you don't fall. And in Hebrews 3, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily 
as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. This need for daily mutual encouragement points out another aspect of Israel's rebellion. It doesn't come out of the blue. It has its roots in a long and sorry pattern of ungratefulness, unbelief and grumbling. In chapter 14, verse 22, God says that the people have disobeyed him and tested him ten times. And the first of those ten times goes right back to Exodus chapter 14, during the events of the Exodus itself. When Pharaoh pursued the Israelites as they left Egypt, we read that they were terrified and said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Again, fear fed sin. Well, in Exodus 14, they accused Moses of bringing them out of Egypt to be killed. In Numbers 14, they accused God. So watch out for patterns of grumbling and ingratitude. Well, we do find encouragement as well as warning in these chapters. We find it first in Moses' prayer. God suggests wiping the people out and starting again with Moses. And Moses responds with bold intercession. It's a familiar pattern. Uh, we've seen it before in Exodus, after the golden calf incident. And did you notice the grounds on which Moses prays? His first port of call is God's international reputation. If God destroys the Israelites, the nations will say he wasn't able to keep his promise to them and bring them into the land, so he slaughtered them in the desert. They will conclude that God is both impotent and malevolent. So Moses prays, may the Lord's strength be displayed, or better, may it be magnified. Many of you will have seen the movie Schindler's List. Uh, in one scene, Oscar Schindler talks about power with the Nazi concentration camp commander, Amon Gert. Uh, Gert's been shooting prisoners for sport and he sees his power epitomised in the ability to kill arbitrarily. Schindler counters, power is when we have every justification to kill and we don't. Real power, he tells them, is displayed in pardon. Well, we see the Nazi commander testing the idea for a few scenes until he reverts to type and shoots a boy in the back for failing to clean his bathtub adequately. Well, in Numbers 14, Moses says to God, show how powerful you really are. Forgive these people. And by contrast with the scene in Schindler's List, Moses is appealing not only to God's reputation, but to his established character. Mercy and wrath are both 
part of God's character. Both are involved in the display of his glory. Both are expressed on the cross. But they are not in balance. They are not equally weighted. God's love and mercy and compassion and patience outweigh and outlast his wrath. Uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 speak of God uh, punishing the children of the si- for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Did you do the maths? The display of God's love outweighs the display of his punishment by a ratio of at least 250 to 1. (laughs) In Exodus 34, when God shows his glory to Moses, he reveals himself, defines himself as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Well, as he draws on that language, Moses is praying, you've said what kind of God you are. Act accordingly. It's bold, isn't it? And there is forgiveness even for this sin. So in 1420, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. If you're struggling with sins of your own, here is wonderful comfort. There is forgiveness even for this wickedness. And there are consequences. We read on. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, And as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. And God goes on to announce that the Exodus generation will die in the wilderness and not enter the land. And did you notice that in punishment, as in forgiveness, God is motivated by a concern for his glory in the world. As surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. He tells that generation... You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. And did you see how the punishment fits the crime? But the Israelites refuse to enter the land. They talk of going back to Egypt and they say it would be better to die there or in the wilderness. So God sends them back along the route towards the Red Sea. And from 14 verse 28 he says, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. That's what you want? That's exactly what you'll get. The spies who brought the bad report die immediately from a plague. Uh, The people grieve, but it's not the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. At the end of chapter 14, they make a presumptuous attempt to put things right and enter the land without Moses or the ark. Moses warns them that God will not be with them, and they're beaten back. They did not trust God's promise. 
they do not accept God's punishment, they still won't believe his word. Even here, though, we see God's patience and there is hope. The children will be shepherds for 40 years because of the unfaithfulness of the Exodus generation. But we read in 14 verse 31, As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. And chapter 15 begins with these words. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, After you enter the land I'm giving you as a home, do you see? God's people still have a future and a hope. Indeed, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses reflects that for the new generation, even the wilderness has a positive purpose. God will lead them all the way to humble them, to test their obedience, to teach them to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Still, these are sobering chapters. God says that everyone numbered on the census will die in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb. There are, in fact, two censuses in numbers. And Dennis Olson has suggested that we can understand the whole book theologically as a tale of two generations, the death of the old and the birth of the new. The old generation turns away and is turned away from the land to die in the desert. The book ends with the new generation poised once more on the border. And the question for the new generation and for later readers like us is this. What kind of generation will we be? Will we respond to God and his words with steady trust and willing obedience or with fearful unbelief and rebellious contempt? It's a stark choice, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord God, make us heed the warnings and encouragements of Scripture. You've shown us your power and love and mercy and compassion, as well as your wrath and justice. In the death and resurrection of your Son, who not only interceded for us, but also bore our punishment. Forgive our sins. Keep us from rebelling against you and treating you with contempt. Nurture us with hope. Help us to trust your promises to the very end. Do it according to your character and for the sake of your glory among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.
you are slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet, Lord, we praise you that you are also a God of justice. You do not leave the guilty unpunished. You punish rightly sin and wickedness. Lord, we are deeply sinful, rebellious people, following in the failings of our ancestors. We daily choose to go our own way, to return to our sins, to lose trust in your power and faithfulness. Lord, soften our hearts, that we might see our sin and seek forgiveness in you. Lord God, we thank you for your word, that it warns us, it pierces our hearts, and causes us to turn to you our only hope. We thank you that in Jesus we find our sins dealt with, that you show us mercy, not dealing with us as we deserve. Thank you that you call us your people and dwell amongst us, and that through Jesus we can cry out to you and you hear us. Let us pray for the world in the region. Lord, we pray for the church in Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, countries ruled by dictatorships, where the Christians make up a tiny minority. Lord, would you give Christians in these countries strength to persevere in the face of persecution from family, police and friends. So many of them have lost everything they own and face severe persecution for their faith, even imprisonment and death. For those who have lost everything for you, would you provide for them, protect and comfort them. Lord, tear down the corrupt leadership and open their borders to foreign aid and Christian mission. We also pray for the countries of Kazakhstan.